talking baseball. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Talking Baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman. And the reason we are having Duke on this morning and the first part of the show is because, well, two reasons. First, our guest, our second guest, uh, Bradley Onishi, uh, lives on the West Coast, and we're giving him an extra half hour to sleep in. And also, he's really got a, an amazing new book you're going to want to hear about and that you're going to be scared when you hear what he has to say. So we're going to start with something a little lighter. Uh, well, not for baseball fans, because it's all deadly serious, of course, and there's an awful lot going on in the world of sports this week, all this base- football mayhem, which maybe we'll get to later on in this conversation. But first, let's start with something that will not be depressing, maybe, which is the state of the Boston Red Sox. So, Duke Goldman, Duke, for our listeners who have not been with us with Duke before, is a baseball historian, uh, base- baseball well, let's put it this way. Duke has probably forgotten more baseball statistics this morning than I have never ever known in my entire life. So uh, Duke is also a, a, a author on baseball and a member of SABRE, the Society of American Baseball Research, which he is one of the shining lights of. So Duke Goldman, thank you for being with us today. We're looking forward to, well, pitchers and catchers will report for spring training in a little over a month. And Correct. well, it's early this year. It is. Because of the World Baseball Classic, which is every three, or I think it was postponed a year this time, every four years. And that means spring training starts around mid-February this year. Okay. Just after the, after the Super Bowl, which I do want to talk about a bit later on in the show. But let's hear about the Red Sox. Are they going to be contenders? Have they put a team back together? Will they climb out of how to put this last place? Will they climb out of last place? Maybe. Uh, they've got the strongest division in baseball. Baltimore had a really good year last year. Toronto is still strong. Tampa somehow always manages to stay in it, partly because of their practices, which began under the Red Sox general manager, Chaim Bloom. More about him in a minute. And, uh, well, the Yankees are the Yankees. So, you know, it's a tough division. The Red Sox made some... Well, the biggest move they made, which Red Sox fans are breathing a heavy sigh of relief about, is the long-term signing of Rafael Devers, which they pretty much had to do. What, 10 years for Devers? Uh, 10 or 11, 11. I think. Yeah, 11 years. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, $30 million a year. Now, you know, Devers is not Mookie Betts. I'm sorry. And that's where the Red Sox first went wrong. Having said that, he's a 24. Five, maybe turning 26, I forget, but, you know, mid-20s guy. Um, doesn't have the kind of body that will probably indicate, you know, really strong performance in his late 30s, but, you know, 11-year contract takes him basically to his mid to late 30s, and so he may still be a productive player, and he will be a long-term Red Sox, and he will be in the middle of the order, and they needed to do that to signal to their fan base that they're, they're willing to compete with the big guys. They elected him. They, the management of the Red Sox, effectively elected Devers the face of the franchise. Correct. You think that's wise? I mean, you've given away, not you personally, but the Red Sox have given away Mookie Betts, as you pointed out. They've lost a substantial number of players who the fans liked. Uh, And there's no one besides Devers, I think, who actually says, I'm a Red Sox, I'm a hometown person, I am the person you should come to see every day. 
that's why that he he was the last one left. You know, they could have done it with Xander Bogarts. They decided Bogarts wasn't worth it for ten years. Now, you know, Bogarts is thirty years old and you know would have commanded a contract roughly, you know, a little bit less, but close to what Devers got. I believe Bogarts got two hundred eighty million from the Padres. Red Sox didn't go for that. So who do they have to make the face of the franchise? It has to be Devers. And they pulled that off. I think the problem with Chaim Bloom is, you know, he there are really three streams of competing in baseball. There's the top payroll, get the biggest free agents. And we know that the Yankees have always done that. The Dodgers have done that. The Mets are starting to do that. And San Diego's joined and that San Diego's group. joined that group. Right. Then there's uh, the low rent district, the teams that have competed with efficiency and bringing in young players. And those teams are generally, well, the Tampa Bay Rays that Chaim Bloom headed and the Oakland A's over the years under Billy Bean's... The Moneyball The Moneyball theory. The Indians have done that to some degree. Um, and then there's sort of the midstream, the Cardinals, the Braves, teams that sign the mid-level free agents that sometimes hold on to face of the franchise type players, sign them early and get them at a discount. Uh, the Red Sox right now are kind of, you know, more towards the middle. And I think for Bloom, it was hard to move from the low rent district to the top payrolls. I, I don't think he made that adjustment. Signing uh, uh, Devers is an indication that maybe he's beginning to recognize that Red Sox fan base expects this. And if he wants to compete with the Yankees, he has to do that. So Duke Ullman, Tell me this. The, baseball is a team sport, as the Yankees made clear to Aaron Judge, and we'll get to him in a moment. We understand you play one position, you bat once every ninth time that a batter comes to the plate in the game, in the games that you play, and you cannot win, a team cannot win a pennant or the World Series based on one player. Correct. Devers does not make the team. There no. has to be a complement around him. Are the Red Sox accomplishing that? Getting back to my question, will the Red Sox actually compete? And if so, what players are going to make them competitive? Well, they made some moves in the offseason. They signed Justin Turner, who's you know a good ball player, a gritty Red Sox-type player, but 38 years old. They signed Corey Kluber, who a few years ago was Cy Young Award winner, but it's, he's been you know a bit suspect. He's mid-30s. Been through, he's, he's been through the Yankees. He's, he's been through he's, the Yankees. He is a really good pitcher. He's been through a lot of clubs now, whether or not he'll have a year or his arm will... Well, he's been pretty. His arm has actually stood up to the rigors of Major League Baseball for a long time. He did have surgery at one point. He has talent, but again, is that more of a mid-market move? Uh, you know, I think so. Um, they signed Kenley Jansen. You know, once arguably the best closer in the game, but not anymore. They picked up a Japanese player named Masataka Yoshida, good ball player, but a position player. They don't usually translate as well from the Japanese leagues and as position players and. Most pundits think that the Red Sox overpaid for him, five years and $90 million. Um, is that enough to compete? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough call. Um, you know, but they I, did. With the, one of the players you just mentioned, Turner, uh, is going to be their designated hitter. He also can play first base, which is a boon to have someone who can actually transfer, uh, at least a designated hitter who can play a position uh, sometimes. That, that's a good thing. And Turner, if he has a year like he did last year, he's a solid 280, 290 hitter with uh, some power. Yeah. Um, 
That's Come right. on, I'm being nice to the Red Sox. That's here. right, <laughs> but is that enough to compete in this tough division? That's the question. I mean, the Red Sox will be competitive. The question is how competitive, and I don't know. Okay, well, <clears throat> let's turn to their nemesis, the Yankees. They signed Judge, gave him a boatload of money, as they had to. What else? The Yankees... The Yankees picked up Carlos Rodon, who was a, a top-notch starter, um, had a good year with the Giants last year, signed him for eight years. He's going to help fill in some of the gaps in the rotation, but there are gaps in the rotation. Uh, Garrett Cole has never turned out to be the superstar ace that the Yankees expected. He's good, but he's not great. Uh, their bullpen is questionable. They did re-sign Rizzo. They have a few good young ballplayers players. Rizzo, for up. those who don't... Uh, follow baseball uh, is a first baseman. He's got a lot of power. Uh, he batted all of about 220, which stinks. Uh, he's in the middle of the lineup. He was both a positive for the Yankees and a big negative last year. And the rules changes this year may really help him. Because mm -hmm. he's a pull hitter. Explain that to our listeners. If you he's would, a pull do. hitter, and now the rule changes are going to require two infielders on each side of second base and previously they were playing to his pull side so they had three infielders positioned to stop his you know hard grounders or line shots going through one of them would play essentially in short right field and then throw him out because he also isn't very fast right well he's again he's a first baseman he's now in his mid-30s and he is not particularly fast so you know his batting average may well you know move upwards towards the upper two 200s, 260s, 270s. He, he can produce for you 25, 30 home runs. Um, you know, they're good, but I don't know if they're as good as the best teams in the American League. I don't see them being quite up there with the Astros. They don't get past the Astros in the postseason. That's the story. I mean, to be sure, the Astros cheated their way past the Yankees one year, but the other years they seem to have done it legitimately. And you're not going to let that go. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, I'm still in pain about that, Duke. Let's be clear. Okay, so we're early. We haven't even started spring training. The Super Bowl and the football playoffs have not been played where do you come out for next year in terms of who is which teams have improved themselves the most? Well, I am going to say that even though right now it's beginning to look like the Mets may not sign Carlos Oh, you're Correa. never going to let go with the Mets. Here we go the with Mets the Mets. The Mets won 101 games last year. Oh, yes, they did. Um, they, they signed Justin Furlander, who won the Cy Young Award in the American League last year. They did lose Jacob deGrom. They re-signed... They, they, you know, for those who don't follow baseball, they lost one of the premier pitchers, but they also picked up a premier Correct. pitcher. They lost Correct. deGrom, they picked up Verlander. Right, and okay. they picked up a top-notch Japanese pitcher named Cody Senga. Um, they re-signed Brandon Nimmo, which was an important signing. They re-signed Edwin Diaz, who was clearly the best relief pitcher in baseball last year. Um, oh, my goodness. We're going to preview an entire season of Duke Goldman lauding the New York Mets. This may be painful some, but on the other hand, as we know, there are Boston Red Sox fans who actually root for the Mets because, well, Common enemy. they, hate the, they all it. hate the Yankees. They all hate the Yankees, and that's where I'm at. So um, I, I truly think that uh, even if the Mets – and I, I, I'm thinking more and more that Carlos Correa, now he had been signed first by the Giants. The Giants found him to have uh, – uh, an injury history from early on in his minor league career. The Mets then picked him up, but before they signed him, they did a physical and they saw the same problems. And now this has gone on for over two weeks. Day after day, the Mets 
sites uh, online have been saying uh, they're coming close to a resolution. Well, now they're starting to say he's talking to the Minnesota Twins again. Correa signed a one-year, uh, a three-year deal with a one-year opt-out with the Twins last year, and beginning to look like he might go there, or maybe the Atlanta Braves will swoop in and sign him for a year or two um, because they lost their shortstop, Dansby Swanson, and they usually like to do those short-term deals. Dan Torres? I have a question for Duke. Duke, is the most important position pitching? Do you think uh, well, over the offseason? you know, pitching, pitching, without pitching, you don't win games. Having said that, it's down the middle as well. So it's a combination of pitching and strength in the catching, second base, shortstop, center field positions. Mm-hmm. Those are the real key elements of a winning team. You mm-hmm. really need both. Okay. Okay. And why is Correa such a hot prospect? And what do we know about his physical injury? Because if you're going to sign someone to more than a year or two, you really have to, you, the team, really has to worry about whether they will survive the rigors of a 162-game season. Well, Correa is an interesting comparison to Francisco Lindor that came up at the exact same moment in 2015. Um, He is a slightly better offensive player than Lindor, who is the star shortstop of the Mets, signed to a long-term contract. Having said that, uh, over the last seven years, Correa has missed the equivalent of an entire season of games more than Lindor has missed. So he has been injured himself, and his injury history that they're most worried about was in the minor leagues where he tore some ligaments, and he has, I think he has a plate in in his leg, and they think he may not hold up that well into his late 30s. He did play a full season last year, and he had an excellent year, but signing someone for 12 years when they have this kind of a problem is risky, and I don't think he's going to get that unless there is some insurance put into the contract, and apparently Correa doesn't want the degree of insurance that will lower the actual value of the contract. Um, He doesn't want it to the extent that the Mets do, and that begins to make it look like he is going to sign with someone else for a shorter term and then put himself back in the market. Final quick question for this segment. You're okay with these $25, $30 million a year contracts for players for 10 years and more in the case of Judge? If it uh, drains money from the rich owners, yeah, I'm totally fine with that. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back talking more baseball and football with the Duke. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you, until now. Now when you call, we'll answer, and if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this. But insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. 
Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Part of what I love about being a therapist in community mental health is really getting to know people who are from really different backgrounds, including serving people who are the most vulnerable. Dan is a therapist at ServiceNet. There's a culture of thinking more deeply about the work we're doing, and for me, when I do that, that feels really good. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday Roberto's? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Pasta bolognese, butternut squash ravioli, chicken broccoli alfredo, and the best thin crust pizza in the valley. Eat in at the bar or order online at Roberto's in downtown Northampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Duke Goldman. Duke, I'd like to have your perspective as a person who has written, studied, uh, edited books on sports for a long time. There was a tragedy, potential real tragedy, that unfolded in front of a large National Football League audience that caught the attention of the nation. Uh, A serious injury. uh, The player could have died. And football just goes on. I mean, took a week to remember uh, Hamlin um, and consider, I guess, a little about what the sport is. But on it goes. The most popular sport in America, dwarfing baseball, I think. Oh, and, for sure. And I'm wondering what your perspective is about this celebration of violence that goes on week after week after week. Well, my perspective is that everybody who watches football regularly should be aware that they're watching a blood sport. Pure and simple. It's a violent sport, and everybody is all upset about Hamlin. Well, what happened to him was a fluke, okay? It could have... It, the, the injury he had, and I don't know what the name of it is, but it's something... It was, car- that, it was cardiac arrest. Well, it was a cardiac arrest, but there's this particular kind. It's usually, if it happens in sports, it's more prone to happening in baseball or hockey than football. It was right. really where, surprising. Where a hard object yes. directly impacts the right. heart and it creates this right. uh, uh, arrhythmia and, and cardiac arrest. It's, it's Of all the injuries that happen in football, this was not one that you would put as a likely... Uh, injury that would affect a player. Correct. And I get it. He almost died. And that's scary. And that makes everybody stop and look and listen. But meanwhile... For about 30 seconds. Well, for for a week. But meanwhile, uh, Tua, the quarterback for Tua Tua Valoa, quarterback for the Dolphins, is going to have brain damage in his life from the horrible hits he's taken. Uh, Offensive linemen die in their late 30s of heart attacks... Many, many football players are going to have 
CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but that doesn't seem to bother the football fan base. So, you know, what does it say? America is attuned and interested in violence, and violence is exciting. Artistry too, I get it. Football is an exciting game for many people. Baseball doesn't have enough action, so people watch and tell themselves it's okay. And this made them stand up and take notice, but will it make long-term changes? No, I doubt it. Every game went on over the weekend. The playoffs will go on interminably this weekend, game after game after game. And they're all, all of this is a countdown to the Super Bowl, which will attract the largest television audience in history. And it seems to me that there is nothing that is apt to change the National Football League and brutal hits, kind of like the description of hockey as a uh, uh, major major uh, uh, boxing max match, uh, inter- inter- interrupted by occasional skating. The, the, the only thing that will change football is if young people stop playing it. And then eventually football will have to do something because they won't have the stream of young players coming, coming up who want to play it at a major league level. But they do through the college. Now they a- do. But, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, if kids stop playing it from the ages of, you know, 10 to 15, will that have an impact? It might. Before that, as long as the money is there, as long as the audience is there, no, I don't see anything changing what football does. They do not want to change. They do not want to acknowledge the immense damage that football players um, experience on a daily and weekly basis. But you know, that's been going on since time immemorial. Um, A famous player named Dave Megasi, who played for the St. Louis, back then the St. Louis Cardinals in 1960s, wrote a book, uh, I think it was called Out of Their League. And he talked about the brutality of football on a weekly basis. This was 50, over 50 years ago. People didn't really hear it then. It got some attention. They're not hearing it now. People don't want their entertainment ruined. I was struck by the popularity and the coverage, the media coverage, of the World Cup. And I'm wondering whether you think that that newfound, I think, popularity of what we call soccer and the rest of the world calls football means that there is some opportunity for soccer of all sports to become more popular, more dominant as a sport uh, in the United States? I think there's a movement in that direction, but I don't think soccer has enough of what Americans consider action, particularly scoring, to take off and captivate the American audience to the degree that football does. So I I see it growing. and again, the more young people play it in America, the more it'll become more popular at, at, you know, to a younger demographic. And then, then the uh, you know, promotional people will see more opportunity um, to develop the sport. But I don't see that changing overnight by any means. Yeah, and just to go back to football for a second, there was a major motion picture. There were major congressional investigations, I believe, about how football destroys players' minds and bodies. Correct. didn't make any difference. No, it won't make a difference. I don't see it changing anytime soon. And a great film, too. Yeah, it was a very well-done film. Yeah, Yeah, playing Dr. Bennett Omalo, who was one of the early people who discovered the linkage between uh, sub-concussive hits. It's less that, you know, dramatic concussion. It's the constant pounding that 
football players get, especially these days when the players are so fast and so big. And very little is being done about it. And, and what you said about Tua as the quarterback uh, for the Miami Dolphins is, is scary. I mean, he already has had two concussions back-to-back, and then he had a recent concussion in recent weeks. He's the kind of player where if I was the Miami Dolphins, you would have to sit him down um, and and just be like, let's reassess. Um, They're in the playoffs, I believe, um, if I'm not mistaken. So So to me, it's a concern. He is really young. He is the future quarterback of your franchise, and you are risking his life. I mean, you're risking his life and health. And I think at some point you need to assess, can he keep taking these hits? Because he has a long future as a quarterback. Let's leave it there. Duke Goldman, thanks so very much for being with us. We really appreciate your time and insights. And when next time you're on with us, we want to hear about what will have happened, I think, at the Hall of Fame and voting this year, which is actually really exciting. Yes, I think it will be exciting. I think there will be a couple of uh, inductees, very possibly. We're going to leave it there. Duke Goldman, we've been talking baseball and other sports with the Duke. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Members of the Wampanoag tribe plan to fight a new plan from the state DOT for a tighter roundabout at North King and Hatfield Streets in Northampton. Mark Andrews, Deputy Cultural Resource Monitor for the tribe, tells Mass Live that it's galling that the city prides itself in recognizing Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day, but they're planning to destroy a significant site. The state originally abandoned plans for a roundabout in 2021 after a state-hired archaeologist found more than 200 artifacts, including sharpened crescent-shaped stones and projectile points that date the site to about 10,000 years ago. A public information session will be held tonight at 6 p.m. at Northampton City Council Chambers. A subcommittee of the Northampton City Council is considering an ordinance to limit the number of retail cannabis dispensaries within the city. Northampton City Council's Legislative Matters Committee passed a motion 3-1 to for a neutral recommendation of the ordinance to be later voted on by City Council. Proponents of the ordinance cite the oversaturation of the cannabis industry within the city as well as possible health effects on local youth. The full council will take up the ordinance on Thursday, January 19th. Amherst teachers staged a walkout after school hours yesterday to draw attention to the fact that ongoing negotiations have left them without a contract since the beginning of this school year. The coordinated action took place at the middle school as well as the high school and four elementary schools in Amherst and Pelham. Among the union's demands are a 3.5% cost of living adjustment for next year and an increase in the minimum pay for all educators, especially paraprofessionals who are among the lowest paid at the school. Partly to mostly sunny today, breezy with a high of 38 to 42. Variable clouds tonight, 14 to 20. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 36 to 40. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
El Departamento de Justicia está revisando un lote de documentos potencialmente clasificados encontrados en el espacio de oficinas de Washington del antiguo Instituto del Presidente Joe Biden, dijo el lunes la Casa Blanca. El abogado especial del presidente, Richard Sauber, dijo que se descubrió una pequeña cantidad de documentos con marcas clasificadas cuando los abogados personales de Biden estaban limpiando las oficinas del Penn Biden Center, donde el presidente mantuvo una oficina después de dejar la vicepresidencia en 2017 hasta poco antes de lanzar su campaña presidencial presidencial de 2020 en 2019. Los documentos se encontraron el 2 de noviembre de 2022 en un armario cerrado en la oficina, dijo Saber. Saber señaló que los abogados alertaron de inmediato a la oficina del abogado de la Casa Blanca, quien notificó a la Administración Nacional de Archivos y Registros que se hizo cargo de los documentos al día siguiente. Desde ese descubrimiento, los abogados personales del presidente han cooperado con los archivos y el Departamento de Justicia en un proceso para garantizar que todos los registros de la administración Obama-Biden estén debidamente en posesión de los archivos, dijo Sauber. En otras informaciones, la Corte Suprema de Estados Unidos rechazó el lunes un esfuerzo de un grupo de funcionarios estatales republicanos para revivir la política de línea dura del expresidente Donald Trump que prohibía que ciertos inmigrantes que probablemente necesitarían beneficios del gobierno obtuvieran la residencia permanente legal. Los jueces rechazaron una apelación de 14 fiscales generales estatales republicanos encabezados por Ken Paxton de Texas de un fallo de un tribunal inferior en contra de su solicitud de montar una defensa legal de la regla de carga pública de Trump después de que la administración del presidente Joe Biden dejó de defender la medida y posteriormente la rescindió. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome to the show Dr. Bradley Onishi, who is a scholar of religion co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. He has his doctorate from the University of California at Santa Barbara, and his new book is titled Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Radha Nishi, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate this book. And I think I'd like to start, rather than asking about the content of the book, of asking you to share with our listeners some of your story, which is fascinating and I think gives you a particularly uh, uh, enlightened perspective on this topic. So tell, her, tell us, if you would, please, what you care to share about your history. Sure. I, uh, I grew up in a pretty non-religious household in Southern California, uh, mixed race. My dad's Japanese-American. My mom's a white woman from the South. Uh, at age 14, however, I, I got invited to church. Uh, it was a Wednesday night Bible study. It was my eighth grade girlfriend, and I thought, this is perfect. Uh, get out of the house. Uh, Mom can't say no to that. I'm going to church. And um, I really just expected it to be a, a, a way to kind of see my girlfriend on a weekday. Uh, you know, when you're 14, that's not easy. Well, uh, I, I, I. And priorities are priorities. Come on. Let's, you're 14. They, they were. <laughs> Those were my priorities. Uh, if I can, if I can get out of the house and see my girlfriend, that's, that's a win. So if I have to deal with a Bible study, who cares? Well, I, I converted in a very extreme way, uh, you know, gave my life and everything I had to the church and to my faith. So by the time I was 20, I was married and I was uh, a full-time minister and I was finishing up at a Christian college and, and getting ready for seminary. Uh, you know, in those teenage years and early 20s, uh, evangelicalism saturated every part of my life. 
All right, what did it mean? How does this evangelicalism, how did it manifest itself when you say every part of your life? What does that mean? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I went from a 14-year-old who uh, played basketball and, and, and baseball and hung out at the movie theaters, you know, with, with other kids and uh, generally just kind of, you know, looked like a pretty standard guy for my Southern California community to somebody who um, stood out in front of the movie theater and asked people if they had met our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, who led a Bible study at his public high school, uh, who would uh, go to uh, his school once a week um, and pray for the school and the country beforehand, you know, an hour or half an hour before school started. Sometimes people would join me, sometimes not. Um, I my, uh, you know, my mother asked me when I was 16, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, you know, instead of a Christmas present, I'd rather you buy Bibles for people who uh, have never heard about Jesus living in Nepal or uh, other parts of the world. So uh, when I say every part of my life, I mean, uh, there was no aspect of who I was that wasn't dedicated to to uh, my religion. So Brad Onishi, one thread that runs through this book is the question you posed at the beginning, and you come back to it a number of times, uh, if I had still been in this movement, would I have been at the Capitol on January 6th? And from what I can tell, I think the answer is yes, actually. That said, I would like you to spend a minute with us on, well, you weren't there because you weren't part of the movement and you haven't been there for some time. W what happened? You know, when I converted, uh, evangelicalism provided really uh, – great and and easy answers to life's hardest questions uh not only providing community but providing ways that uh, i could understand the meaning of life what happens after you die what's the point of being here uh do do bad people get punished do good people get rewarded um you know what's the beginning of the universe well in many ways as an adolescent those answers were uh, uh, a literal godsend. But as I grew older and, and I became somebody who reads a lot and thinks a lot and, and enjoys uh, intellectual complexity, there was just no way that that framework uh, held in place. And I began to question it. I began to explore. And they say in the community that if you read too many books, they'll lead your heart uh, away from God. Your brain will lead your heart away from God. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that's totally true, but that is that is what happened to me. The more I read, the more I questioned the more I realized that life is more complicated than the either or answers that uh, I had been given. So was your leaving the evangelical movement essentially an intellectual exercise or was it an emotional exercise or the girlfriend had long since disappeared? I mean, what happened? What was, was there some event or this was just a gradual dissipation of your belief system? You know, there's a, <clears throat> there's a gradual chipping away of what felt at one time like a foolproof uh, worldview, a worldview that in my mind at one point was was absolutely, uh, you know, errorless. So you read enough, you think enough, and and, uh, and things start to chip away. But then there are events. So uh, in 2000, in the 2004 election, the George W. Bush, John Kerry election, I remember telling the, my mentors at church, hey, I'm going to vote for John Kerry, because uh, he's, he's a candidate that's going to provide, I think, a better, uh, you know, system and set of policies for those who are economically underprivileged or uh, for uh, those needing healthcare. And they all said, you know, that's great, but if you do that, you're voting for the, the, the murder of millions of babies. And it was really a, a, a clear cut one issue situation. And when I got in the voting booth, I was haunted because I knew instinctually that I, 
I thought John Kerry was a better candidate, a more humane candidate and a more Christian candidate. But voting for him, in my mind at least, were these voices saying, you will vote for millions of babies to be killed. Do you want that? Well, when I left that voting booth, I was determined to find a, a different faith and a different understanding of things that allowed for more complexity and nuance. And so events like that eventually chip away to the point where it just, the center no longer holds and you find yourself moving away from it. In your book, you trace the evangelical white supremacist movement essentially back to Barry Goldwater. And you run the thread from Goldwater to Donald Trump. It seems to me, and let me back up for a second, you of course invoke the uh, famous Goldwater statement, um, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Um, and his defense of extremism, uh, and I remember that, that speech. Um, I, it seems to me that the person who actually brought Goldwater to fruition was Nixon. Nixon who said, the Southern strategy, if we can get all the white racists, overt or not, um, in the South, and we have those votes. We have the solid Republican South. We only need a half a dozen other states, and we can control the country forever. And the Southern strategy, in fact, has worked. And I'm wondering whether or not you think that Nixon gets enough of the blame for what has become a nationwide movement that is, in fact, in significant measure, taken over the country. Oh, no, I agree. And uh, I, you know, if, if I had uh, more chapters, there, there would there would be certainly uh, more more time spent on Nixon. It, I will say uh, that I my hometown is the hometown of Richard Nixon. So uh, my, my I grew up uh, two miles from Nixon's birthplace and the church that I went to was was Nixon's church. Um, and, and his so, college was out there. Whittier College is, is about 15, 20 minutes from where I grew up. And I had I had friends who went there. And you know those listening who know their history will know that uh, the church that I'm I'm discussing it has a Quaker history. So you know you, when you think of Quakers, you think of pacifism, egalitarianism, social justice. Well, uh, none of that seemed to stick with Nixon, and none of it seemed to stick with the, the community that I grew up in. So completely agree uh, that uh, if we go from Goldwater, uh, we get to Nixon, and then we get to Reagan, and of course all of those men were either uh, centered in Southern California or had significant support from Southern California that really pushed them ahead in national politics. Something I learned from your book that I, that I kind of had an inkling of, but I didn't really understand, was how Southern California, that San Diego, uh, Orange County area, was a, it became a bastion of right-wing evangelicalism. And because we always think of California as you know, this liberal progressive state, there is this large chunk of the state that is really right-wing. And I didn't understand how that happened. I found that fascinating. And I wish you would take a minute and explain that to our listeners. No, I, th I think a lot of people share that. They, they envision California as a, a, a very liberal place, but it's a big state. You know, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, we have what's called the Sunbelt Migration. And we have uh, millions of Southerners and Midwesterners leave uh, their homes for California because there was uh, uh, the center of the defense industry had moved there after World War II. So believe it or not, in those decades, you have cheap real estate, you have well-paying jobs, and you have, you know, great weather. Why not move there? Well, all of those Southerners and Midwesterners, almost almost unanimously white, were uh, able to create it kind of from scratch their 
ideal, you know, United States uh, community, their ideal American communities. Well, it turns out that those were shaped into libertarian, pro-capitalist, anti-communist, uh, white Christian communities. And what takes root is really what historians consider the epicenter of the new conservatism in those decades, the 60s and the 70s. This is where the John Birch Society really has its spiritual home. Uh, this is where, as we mentioned, Goldwater, Nixon, Reagan really emerge as national politicians. It's also where John Wayne uh, is, is most uh, at home in, in Southern California. Our airport, Orange County, is called John Wayne Airport after all, and he was uh, a hero of right-wing politics during the middle 20th century, along with Pat Boone and many others. And so it might be counterintuitive, but Southern California really shapes the American right in the middle 20th century in ways we're still dealing with now. Tell me this. You have, I think, a really uh, insightful description of Ronald Reagan, of course, who has had at the time and continues to have this aura. He's affable. He's nice. He's not mean. He couldn't be racist. Uh, he was uh, at one point the uh, head of the Screen Actors Guild, so he has uh, Democratic labor roots. Uh, and then there's George Bush, who it's talking about compassionate conservatism and creates this aura of respectability for right-wing extremism. How did they manage that? How was that successful? One of the things that I like, I, I argue in the book, is that Reagan is uh, is really an heir of Goldwater, and in some sense Nixon, but uh, you know he really does have ties to the Goldwater campaign. He gave a famous speech as part of Goldwater's presidential run and so on. And where Goldwater was brusque and over the top and bombastic, uh, Reagan was uh, very comfortable on screen. He knew his audiences, he knew what to say, and he converted uh, the, the, the spectacle of the Goldwater campaign and the uh, irritability of the Nixon persona into a Hollywood uh, uh, character that translated the Southern strategy, that translated the opposition to civil rights, that translated the, uh, the, the war on uh, inner city communities into language that A, was not signaled as racist, and B, uh, was a dog whistle for the libertarian white uh, Christian communities that I've discussed who ate it up. And so Reagan's remembered not like Goldwater as an extremist, but as the father of the modern conservatism. But as I try to show in the book, there's a direct lineage between the two, and we really should see Nixon in a different light. You say this. Excuse me, Reagan. Reagan. Excuse me, yes, Reagan. Sorry. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, you say this. I'm going to quote two sentences of your book back to you. I'm not so much talking about the Trump presidency itself as the white Christian coalition that helped create the pathway for his ascendancy and then supported him every authoritarian and traitorous step of the way. I'm talking about the megachurch congregations. Uh, the Proud Boys, QAnon, Oath Keepers, Redoubt Migrants, and other MAGAites who used God's name to justify, justify the worst domestic attack on the Capitol in the history of the United States. You say, in essence, this is predictable. This is the, in fact, desired outcome in some ways of this right-wing Christian organization, invoking God and Christ in justification of violence and anarchy. And I'm wondering whether you could explain to us why you see that continuum as being so, and I'm not sure inevitable is the right word, but at least predictable. One of the 
the arguments I would make is that this group, uh, who I call white Christian nationalists, so there are made up mainly of evangelicals, but there's a number of white Catholics and other uh, other groups in there. Uh, white Christian nationalists see themselves as exclusively holding the title of founder of the country. Uh, they're the people who can trace their lineage that founded this nation. And as such, if they are not recognized and given the places of authority and power in the economic, the political, the social realms, then they see themselves as victims. And so the, the, two, uh, the two roles they play, according to the historian Lauren Kirby, are really founder or victim. Now, since the 1960s, they have seen themselves as victims when Americans who had been marginalized uh, surged forward in representation of rights in the 60s the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act, immigration reform, uh, the sexual revolution, women's uh, liberation and women entering the workforce in mass, queer liberation, Stonewall and everything before and everything after it. For most Americans, this feels like progress, like uh, the country is living up to its creed uh, in some way. Well, for the white Christian nationalists, this feels as if those who don't deserve it are now uh, representing the country, those who are not the founders are somehow in charge, and they have to do everything they can to get their country back. And one of the things that I would, I would maintain is that for them, the goal is power. The goal is not democracy. If democracy has to be martyred in the process, that's okay, because it's not the sacred value here. Power is. And so when you continually dislodge them from those places, and especially when you put in place the big lie and say that the election has been stolen, uh, what we what we see next is 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 what we saw two years ago, and that's a violent attack on the country and the capital. We're speaking with Brad Onishi. His new book is Preparing for War: The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to pose this question: What does come next? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Skates cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a peel off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President, Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President, Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President of Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. 
That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, your message at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, your message at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Bradley Onishi, whose new book is Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. I appreciate the history in the book. I appreciate your drawing these threads through the story. Uh, I appreciate the way in which you explain uh, how this right, right wing white Christian nationalism has somehow become mainstream and acceptable, the extremism, the racism, uh, the the inveterate hatred. I mean, it's just extraordinary, and it makes things clear in a way, your book makes things clear in a way that uh, I really hadn't, uh, uh, gives me a clarity that I hadn't had before. I would appreciate your addressing the question that your title raises, what comes next? What do you think? I think, I think there's a couple things to keep an eye on. Uh, I think one is that we're in a moment in national politics where Donald Trump seems to be in a precarious position. It's not clear how strong he is uh, in terms of being the figurehead of the GOP. Uh, will he be the 2024 candidate? Will he lose in a primary? Who knows? And I'm not going to sit here and say that I have all those answers. What I do know is that we're starting to see the outlines of a Trumpism without Trump that uh, could take shape. So Ron DeSantis down in Florida, is someone who just won in a landslide. And he is not nearly as bombastic or spectacular as Trump on the screen or on the debate stage or on the campaign trail, but he is putting in policies that are even further to the right of Trump on uh, immigration, on COVID vaccines, on education. So the Trumpism has not gone away. And yet uh, DeSantis is a much better uh, governor, meaning he's much better at governance. He can use the, the levers of government Uh, in ways that the Trump administration was always uh, just never competent in doing. So I think what is next is a continuation of Trumpism in some form, even if Trump is not present. I also think that, you know, we are two two years from the insurrection and we've seen challenges to our democracy. And I think the 2022 midterms really showed us that many people came out to vote for democracy as a kitchen table issue, as well as uh, reproductive rights. But there are little fires everywhere that I think we must notice. Uh, You know, people are willing to destroy power grids to prevent uh, drag queen story hour. There are people showing up to to uh, to brunch uh, with AR-15s to prevent gay folks uh, from eating in peace. Uh, there are takeovers of school boards. Uh, there are violent clashes at PTA meetings. 
there are voter intimidation campaigns and uh, automatic rifles uh, outside of drop boxes uh, in Arizona. So there are little fires everywhere. And I spend the last chapter of the book detailing one particular movement in, in the, uh, the big west uh, region of this country that really, I think, exemplifies how it would be a mistake to think, well, it's been two years since we had the insurrection. Nothing's happened then, since then. So let's go ahead and just uh, turn the alarms off, uh, go back to our hobbies, uh, you know, get some lunch and uh, just trust that uh, we're in safe uh, democratic hands for the, you know, the next uh, couple decades here. Uh, I just don't think that's where we're at as a nation. In the 30 seconds or so that we have left, do you think that electoral politics is the answer, the antidote, the defense? Well, it has to be in some sense, because I think I believe in democracy. And so I believe that organizing uh, in terms of electoral politics is incredibly important. But I also think that we have to recognize that, uh, you know, politics is downstream from culture. Uh, and so culture is a massive part of this. And recognizing white Christian privileges is really big. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Brad Onishi. His new book is Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, available at your local independent bookstore. Please buy it there. You're going to find this book fascinating. Bradley Onishi, thank you so much for being with us, and thanks for the book. Thanks so much for having me. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Your phone is a radio. Your computer is a radio. Your smart speaker is a radio, and your radio is still a radio. You can listen to WHMP on all your devices and on 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock.